Both Bob and I are feeling better, which is a relative term for us. The, the guys with the ties are back. <laughs> and uh, so we're hoping to get some messages out here. Get some in the can, as you always say, right, Bob? All right. Well, let's just open up with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And we give you praise and honor for being a God who is faithful. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we look into it today and about the Sunday school and the sermon, that you'd help us to think well in the biblical text and understand what your biblical writers are saying to us. And we thank you for the promises that we have. And we pray that it would sustain us to that day you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, dear ones, as you can see, we're in Revelation chapter 15. We finally made it there. And I had mentioned last time that once we get into chapter 15, the pace is going to accelerate because last time we finished in chapter 14. So in Revelation chapters 12 through 14, we had a lot of background information that led up to these bold judgments that are going to come when we get to chapter 16. So let's just recall for the sake of review. We saw back in Revelation chapter 12 the history of Satan and his desire to wipe out the people of Israel in history. Then when we got into Revelation chapter 13, we saw the revelation of the Antichrist, the beast, but also the two witnesses that God would use to proclaim the gospel even in the last part of the tribulation period. Well, then when we got into Revelation chapter 14, we saw the ascension of Babylon, this one world order that would come about in the 70th week of Daniel, but we also saw its assured destruction. Now, as we get into Revelation chapter 15, John is going to have a testimony, a vision of a bunch of martyred saints who are singing in the throne room the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, remember, the last time the song of Moses was sung was during the Exodus event. And so what we really have going on here is the final Exodus. That's what John wants us to see. And remember, an exodus is first and foremost victory over God's enemies, but also a departure from God's enemies. And so just as the first exodus was made possible by the shed blood of a lamb, the final exodus, of course, is made possible by the shed blood of the lamb. And he is going to bring us also into the promised land a promised land that will be forever and ever. And so that's what we're going to be learning about here this morning. Now, with that, we begin by looking at this scene in heaven. And I want to show you a little bit of a structure. John uses repeated themes over and over in the way he structures the book of Revelation. And one structure that he uses is prior to getting into the judgments, whether they be the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls, he shows you a scene in the throne room of God in heaven. Let me just show you that real quick because we're coming into that same thing here in chapter 15. Notice here, we have a scene in heaven in chapters 4 through 5 of Revelation. That was prior to what? The seal judgments. Well, then we had a scene in heaven in chapters 8, verses 2 through 6. That was prior to the trumpet judgments. Now we're in chapter 15. We have a scene in heaven again. Why? Because when we get into chapter 16... We have the bold judgments. So every time, just prior to the wrath of God being unleashed in the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, you have a scene in heaven. And that's what we have here now. Revelation 15, 1. 
And John writes this. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Now, dear ones, notice here in Revelation 15, 1, we have what's called the superscription. That is the title for both chapters 15 and chapter 16. So if you're going to title both chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation, you could say it's titled Another Sign in Heaven, Great and Marvelous. All right? Now, this great sign that's great and marvelous should remind us that the last time we saw a great sign was, of course, back in Revelation chapter 12. And remember there, you had the woman clothed with the sun and the moon. Do you remember who she was? The symbology was Israel. And who was trying to wipe out Israel? The great dragon. Well, now, the sign here consists of seven angels that are about to dispense the last seven bowls or seven plagues of wrath, and in them, God's wrath will finally be finished. Now, notice here, we have a sign that's great and marvelous, but it's a sign that is within the 70th week of Daniel. Does everyone with me? It's in the last seven years. It's not occurring now. And the reason that's important to remember is in the Olivet Discourse and also in the book of Revelation, all of the signs that are witnessed are signs that occur within the last seven years. Okay? Now, why is that critical? Well, because I believe when the parousia, the coming of Christ, occurs, it is a signless event. There's going to be nothing to tip you off that that day will happen. And that's why, remember, even when the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel, they're debating with Jesus, and they want to see a sign. And it's a sign, of course, that would authenticate his messianic claims. But what does he tell them? This is in Matthew 16, 4. He says, A wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but none will be given to it. Now, Bob wrote a great CIC article, and I don't remember if you know the number off the top of your head. There's so many of them. But one of the articles he wrote was about this generation. And what Bob shows is, and you don't have to speak, Bob, because I know he's trying to save his voice for the, I don't want to rope him into this and have him waste his voice here. But um, he wrote an article, and what he was describing is in this generation, it refers not to a 40-year window of people, but it's used as a pejorative referring to all unbelievers really for all time. That's what it really refers to, especially to the unbelieving leadership of Israel. So what's interesting is when Jesus says this generation seeks for a sign, he's not just talking about a 40-year window or a 100-year window of people. He's talking about the unregenerate. The unregenerate world demands to see a sign, and yet none's going to be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Yeah, Bob. This is very important, and getting it wrong has cost people a lot of foolish embarrassment. Yeah. In 1988... A guy published an article called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Okay. And he sold hundreds of thousands of these books. Sure. And he was wrong. I knew he'd be wrong. <laughs> but he believed that the 40 years started in 1948 when Israel returned. So he just, this generation, counted 40 years. Well, the guy made a total fool out of himself, but then he published another book about 1989. <laughs> he was wrong again. 
<laughs> but so it goes. Yeah. So my question is this. If that, this is the case, yeah. no sign needs to happen before the rapture. Is that yeah, what you're amen, saying? Amen, amen. Has that always been true? Yeah. When did that start being true? Yeah, very good question. And I think it really begins at the last days. Okay, so when did the last days begin? It began at the first advent of Christ. And we know that from Hebrews chapters 1. Remember, he says in the first two verses, in many ways, in many portions, he's spoken to us, or spoken to the forefathers. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through the Son. You know, who, right? So the last days, we know, began with the first advent of Christ. And ever since then, these events of the parousia are imminent. They're at hand. Think about it this way. Remember the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9? 483 years, that is 69 weeks of those years, were completed at the first advent of Christ. Well, there's seven years left over, what we call the 70th week of Daniel. And the question is, when will that break forth? You don't know. That's synonymous with the parousia. That's the coming of Christ. How many times does Jesus say in Matthew 24, you can't know? No one knows, not even the angels in heaven. So if the angels in, in heaven don't know when the parousia of the Christ is going to happen, uh, why does this joker that Bob's talking about claim he knows that it's going to happen in 1988? Okay? So my point, dear ones, is the only sign that this world has given is the sign of Jonah, which is what? It's the resurrection. Well, how do you and I know about the resurrection? Through the word of God. So just as in Noah's day, all the people had was Noah's preaching. That's all they had. There was nothing to tip them off that this flood was going to come. There was no cloud in the sky. There was nothing to tip them off until the wrath came. The same thing occurs in our generation. Okay, nothing is going to tip anyone off except for the word of God. That's all people have. Now, notice this term great and marvelous. What's interesting is it only occurs twice in the entire New Testament, both times in Revelation chapter 15, here and again in verse 3. And the significance of that is I think it shows us the awe that these powerful judgments are going to bring about. These are awe-inspiring in the sense of fearful. They really are great and marvelous. And as we're going to show at the end of this message, the wrath of God as he pours out on the unregenerate world is something that brings him great glory, as we will find out. Now, notice here it says the seven angels who had the seven plagues, he says, which are the last of, you know, because he says in them the wrath of God is finished. Well, it's interesting to note that these seven plagues or seven bowl judgments, five of them are directly related to the plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians at the first exodus. So what we have then is a deliberate connection to the first exodus. So the first exodus was affected by a lamb. You had these plagues, right, prior to that. Well, now we have a lamb. We have the plagues. We have the final exodus. That's for sure what John wants us to understand. In fact, this combined with the song of Moses, as we're going to see, certainly ties Revelation 15 to what we see in the very first exodus. Now, notice it talks about here, the wrath of God is finished. And the term wrath there comes from the term thumos. In Greek, there's two terms that are typically used for wrath. It's either orge or thumos. And they're normally thought of as kind of basically inseparable, but a slight distinction can be made in that orge is typically God's planning of wrath, the wrath and anger that he has within him, and thumos is the expression of it. In fact, Thomas puts it this way. He says, God's thumos is his wrath and action that was planned in his orge, unquote. 
So thumos is what's being denoted here. And what that shows is that his wrath is going to be poured out. It's no longer just in the planning phases. Now, isn't that interesting? Because if you talk to people in the world and you warn them about God's wrath, that's something they always push off. Oh, that'll never happen. And we can get it in our minds as well that, well, that's never going to happen. But there's a day that's going to happen, dear ones, when the church is caught up to be with the Lord and we're hidden in the chambers, as it says in Isaiah 26, while God's wrath runs its course. It really will come. God's wrath will switch from orge, the planning phase, to thumos, the execution of that planning. It really will come. Now, notice he also says that when these seven angels have unleashed these last seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished. Now, this is an aorist passive verb from teleo. Passive means it's passive in the sense that God is the one who's doing the action. So this is brought about by God. But the fact that it's in the aorist would simply indicate that it's happened in the past. Well, this obviously hasn't happened in the past historically. This is an example, again, of a proleptic aorist. Remember prolepsis? God can speak of something as having occurred, even though it's still in the future, because it's so certain it will occur. That's what's being used here. Sometimes it's called the prophetic aorist. It's so certain that the event will happen, he speaks as if it's already occurred. By the way, you see that in Romans 8.30. Remember, those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those he justified, he also glorified. Have you and I been glorified yet? No, but it's in the aorist tense. Why? Because it's so certain that it will occur. God can speak as if it's already occurred. Okay, that's the idea here. Now, what's interesting is this term teleo for finished really means two things, and I don't think they're necessarily to be separated. Teleo can mean to finish. That is, it's just complete. When you get done working on your deck, teleo, it's completed. But there's also a sense in which when you get done working on your deck, (laughs) I can see some over here saying you never get done working on your deck. Is that the idea? (laughs) I agree. It's, it's It's always in process. But teleo also can have the idea of coming to completion. So not only... In other words, the idea of a goal is met. The plan was finished. Are you with me? So it's not just termination. It's also the reaching of a goal. And I think both here are really resident here in the term teleo as is finished. Now, here's why I say that. Let's talk a little bit about the duration of God's wrath. Because here, if you say, well, it's finished, that means one day God's wrath will be finished and there'll be no more. There'll be no more God's wrath. Well, that's not exactly the way the book of Revelation depicts God's wrath. Let me show you why. Remember, the wrath of God begins at the inception of the 70th week of Daniel. The beginning of the 70th week of Daniel is in Revelation chapter 6, the seven seals. So the first seal judgments, remember, you have six of them. And what does the seventh open up to? You really don't have a seventh seal. It's the seventh seal that opens up to the trumpet judgments. So then you have six trumpets of judgment. Well, there's seven trumpets, aren't there? Well, yes, but the seventh opens up to the bowl judgments. Now you have six bowls of wrath that we're going to be seeing in Revelation 16. This is the preface to it. But when you get to the seventh bowl, where is it? Well, I think it culminates in the eternal lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. And that's the wrath of God that goes on and on and on. And so when we read here in Revelation 15, 1, because in them the wrath of God is finished, we have to understand that it's not finished in the sense that it will cease, but that it's reached its goal. 
the completion. How many in here have ever heard of the teleological argument? I, I know I, Bob and Dana and some of you have. The teleological argument is, it comes from the term telos. And what it is, is it's an argument where we say, look, there's design, there's a goal in this creation. It looks like it's designed. And if there's design, what does that presuppose? A designer. You see, something designed doesn't come about randomly. It's an oxymoron to say, that was randomly designed, okay? Even though I've designed things that seem like they're random. <laughs> Didn't quite work out. My gas grill, when I try to put that together, it seems very random, but there's actually a design, right? And so we say, hey, there must be a design to all of this, hence there's a designer. Well, that's the idea here. God's wrath has reached its design. It's come to fruition. Yes, it's completed in the sense that there's no more to do, but that wrath will go on forever and ever. So here's the point. Dear ones, no one, anyone say from Revelation 15:1 that God's wrath will one day cease and therefore his wrath isn't eternal. That's not the point, and that doesn't line up even with the structure of the book of Revelation because Revelation chapter 20 shows that this wrath is indeed eternal in the lake of fire. Okay, now let's keep going. By the way, any questions or comments, feel free. Nothing? All right. I feel like one of those radio talk show hosts where he's so boring, nobody says anything. They just Nobody calls in. <laughs> I'll just keep going. All right. Revelation four, or 15, verses 2 through 3, John continues. He says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Yeah, Bob. Oh, I'm sorry. Somebody had something? Oh, hi, Ed. I was just going to say the uh, word generation. All I did with that was shift my feeling about it or my thought about the word generation, this generation. It's a material thing, not a time thing. In other words, the humankind is the generation, human, all of humankind. It's a qualitative issue, not a quantitative issue, exactly. It's the quality of humanity, not the quantity of the time in which they live. Exactly right. Now, why this is so important is because, for instance, in Matthew, Jesus will talk about all these things coming upon this generation. Well, preterists take that and say, aha, if it has to happen within the generation of the lifespan of the apostles, the disciples, everything had to happen by 70 A.D., well, what Bob insightly shows in his article is that, no, this generation isn't a time period. It's a qualitative issue. And so if you lived in 1805 B.C. and you're an unbeliever in rebellion against Yahweh, you're part of this generation. If you live in the 1700s A.D. and you're a pagan worshiping idols or an unbeliever in any sense, you're part of this generation. Ironically, the leadership of Israel that was supposed to show the way of salvation, they were part of this generation, the generation that sheds the blood of the prophets from righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, as Jesus said in Matthew 23. So well said, Ed. So yes, this generation, as Jesus uses it, is used not as a quantitative term, but a qualitative term there. Yeah, well said. All right. Now, notice here we have... Something he says, notice John is describing what he sees in this vision. 
And he saw something, he says, like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, the last time we saw this idea of the sea of glass, remember we're in Revelation chapter 4. Now, let me just read to you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, and we'll make some connections here to that. Because Revelation 4, 6, as you're turning there, makes connections back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Okay, so as you're turning to Revelation 4, 6, notice what it says here. Revelation 4, 6, it says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, that image that John has is almost identical to what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1, where he saw an expanse like a sea of crystal as well in the throne room of God. Now, what's interesting is the connection we said between Ezekiel 1 and Revelation chapter 4 was in Ezekiel's day, the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon whom? Upon Judah and Israel. In Revelation, that same wrath is going to be poured out, but now there's a reversal. It's not going to be poured out upon Judah and Israel. It's going to be poured out upon whom? The, the world. The rest of the world. Okay? Well, now, what we have here is the sea once more being stood upon now by the martyred saints. And I think the sea really represents two things, as we mentioned last time in Revelation 4, when we covered this, that number one, God's rule is one in which it extends over all creation. But it also, in Revelation, shows a direct confrontation with the beast. Remember the Antichrist? Where does the Antichrist come out of? The sea. Okay, so God has his sea. And here, what's so interesting is the sea is mixed with fire in Revelation chapter 15 because it is an image of this impending judgment and wrath that is going to come. In fact, notice what Robert Thomas says about the sea here. Robert Thomas says, quote, The sea is a mighty reservoir of just judgments about to become realities. The overcomers have forded the new Red Sea, which will shortly engulf their foes, unquote. Think about it. In the very first exodus, where did the people of God come through? They came through the Red Sea. And what did the Red Sea do? It engulfed their enemies. Well, now you have another sea, as it were, and the people of God are standing upon it. They come through it, but it's about to engulf their enemies. That's Thomas's point. Yeah, Eric. I think, I think you may have covered this er earlier in some of the other talks on Revelation, but as I recall... In Hebraic thought, the sea was... They, they were not a seafaring people. Exactly. In Hebraic thought, they really felt that the sea was just a, just a place of dread, a place, to, a place of danger, and, and just not a good thing. Well said. In fact, remember when the demoniac he's, has all those demons within him, and they're sent into the swine? And then the swine go where? Into the sea. The sea is the representation of the abyss to them. So they're not the people who want to... Um, in fact, it's interesting. When you go to Israel, if, in America, if you're on the, the sea, people just build everywhere. You have a little bit of that, but not nearly to the extent. They're not a seafaring people. To, be, to them, it represents separation. It rep represents chaos. It's, um, it represents something that separates them from the promises of God. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to, when you talk about um, Revelation 4-6 and Ezekiel one twenty two, is there some similarity in um, Exodus 24, 9 and 10 also? Yeah, go ahead and read it. 
Um, I don't know. It says, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, as clear as the sky itself. And then it just says, God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. Well, yeah, you know what's funny? I remember um, I did have that note last time in Revelation 4, and I do remember because the Nadab and Abihu reference, remember those are the guys that end up offering profane fire and are wiped out. Yes, that is a connection. Um, in fact, it's a connection with Ezekiel 1, then Exodus 24, and Revelation 4. What's interesting is there you have Mount Sinai, and we're going to see connections here to Mount Sinai as well. This is where God intervenes, and he brings his throne room, as it were, to Sinai. And he speaks on behalf of himself, obviously, for the sake of his people. Yeah. So you have the same thing once again in the throne room of God. Very good connection. Thanks, Luann. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, sea, uh, the sea is not a good thing. And that's why, remember, at the end of Revelation, John makes that almost a, it's kind of a side-the-point comment, but it's important. He says he sees the new creation, and he says there was no more sea. Now, you and I maybe are a little bummed out by that, but the Israelites are ecstatic. They hate the sea. The sea represents the abyss. That's why, remember, they always want to bury their relatives altogether because that's where the blessings of God are found. It's found in communion and family. So if you're lost at sea, the risk is that you are in jeopardy of losing out on the promises. And so the sea was a horrific, horrible place. They didn't like it at all. Yeah, very well said. And it's interesting, therefore, that's why the Antichrist comes from there. It's a very good image. Okay, so anybody, other questions? Good questions and comments. Thank you. All right, now, let's see. Let's move on to, oh, now here, one thing I want to mention here is who's standing upon the sea are these martyrs who were killed during the 70th week of Daniel. Let's read about how we know that. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 12, 11. This will show how they became overcomers. Notice it says in the underlined portion that they were standing on the sea of glass. They're holding harps. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 12, 11. Notice it says here of these martyrs, and they overcame him, that's the beast, the devil ultimately, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So, dear ones, how do people overcome in the 70th week of Daniel? Well, they're going to overcome by the blood of the lamb. It's not by their own power, but it's through the power of Christ. Christ sets us free through his shed blood, just like at the first Exodus, the very first Passover when the people of God would apply the blood to the doorposts of their home, the wrath of God would pass them over. So when Jesus comes on the scene, remember John the Baptist says of him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the image is then if we apply by faith the blood of the Lamb Jesus, when the wrath of God comes, we're going to be passed over. And we also go through the wilderness of life we're on the way to the promised land. So really this Exodus motif is really all over the scriptures, especially here in the book of Revelation. In fact, notice the imagery. It says in the red, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So notice there are two songs being sung. The song of Moses that we saw back in Exodus 15, but now they add to that the song of the Lamb. Now, what's interesting is we have two songs, but I want you to think of the similarity. What John wants us to understand is when the people of God came through the Red Sea and God was victorious over the enemies of Israel and over his enemies, the people sang a song and they celebrated his power. 
and his marvelous deeds, his marvelous works of salvation. Well, now the same thing is occurring in the 70th week of Daniel. Why? Because it's the ultimate exodus. Dear ones, you and I are on an exodus. You were justified by the blood of the Lamb. You were baptized. They went through the Red Sea. You went through the baptismal waters. You're living right now in the wilderness of your life. And the, the point is, is that you have to persevere in the faith. Why did Israel fail in the wilderness? Because of unbelief, the writer of Hebrews says. And so why do you do the means of grace? Why do you do the Lord's Supper? Why do you dedicate yourselves as the early church did to those four things in Acts 2.42? To the Word of God, to fellowship, to prayer, and to the Lord's Supper. So that you won't fall in unbelief in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So that's the imagery that we see in our life. But it's especially true here in the 70th week of Daniel. All right. Now, let me give you some similarities between Exodus 15, that's the Song of Moses, and Revelation 15. So if you're a note-taker, it's easy. Exodus 15, Revelation 15. Here are four similarities. First of all, you have a song of triumph in both cases. You have in the day of Moses, the triumph over the Egyptians. In the 70th week of Daniel, Revelation 15, there's a triumph over the enemies of the world, over the beast, over Babylon, and over Satan. Second, you have plague, the term for plague. The plagues were used in the Exodus, and the plagues are going to be used in the bold judgments in Revelation. Number three, you have similarities in the plagues. Not only are they plagues, they're the same plagues. And in fact, I'll show you that in a couple of slides. You're going to have water turned to blood. You're going to have boils, etc., darkness, those sorts of things. Number four, you have the lamb in both cases. And that's why, dear ones, I think that John makes it clear that they're going to sing not just the song of Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, they're going to sing the song of the lamb, the mediator of the eternal covenant. Yes, there was a lamb who saved the people of God at the first exodus, but the lamb of God, the Messiah, is ultimately the one who spares the people of God in the ultimate exodus. So these are all the similarities that I think we're to see to know that John really wants us to understand that this is the final exodus. Now, let's look at the song a little bit. What do they cry out as they're singing in the throne room of God? Notice in black, I have it bolded. They say, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now, what's interesting is that term, great and marvelous are your works, that is sung of Yahweh. In fact, in Psalm 111.2, it says, Great are the works of Yahweh. They are studied by all who delight in them. What's so interesting is you and I can attribute the very same praises to the Lamb. Now, why is that important? Because it shows us the Lamb is, in fact, Yahweh. And I'm going to show you that as we progress, that there's a lot of things that are said of the Lamb, of Jesus, that are only said of Yahweh. Why? Because Jesus is Yahweh. He is, in fact, God. Notice here the works of Yahweh at the Exodus caused fear and astonishment. But we have at the final Exodus, the 70th week of Daniel, wrath that's never been seen before. Wrath that's never been paralleled before. And that's going to cause great fear and astonishment. Here, notice the Lord God. He's called the Almighty. For those of you that study the names of God in Hebrew, that's El Shaddai, isn't it? He's the Almighty One. And so when you and I came to faith in Jesus... You and I didn't just trust in some cream puff. We trusted in the mighty warrior of God, didn't we? The one who, when he descends and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, 
will wipe out all the enemies of God. That's the one you trust in. He's kind and humble and loving, merciful. But to those who are his enemies, he's a fearsome warrior. And to me, that's very moving. You know, there's an old saying about the U.S. military. If you're ever in trouble, the military you want to see come over the hill was the U.S. military, the U.S. Marine Corps, the U.S. Army. Why? Well, think about the Berlin airlift. Think about years ago, we just finished off Nazi Germany. And within just a few years, they're starving because the Soviet Union cut them off from food. What did we do? We sent hundreds and hundreds of aircraft to supply them. There was a German lady. She said, I'd never seen such love displayed. So here you have the U.S. Army, the military, the most fearsome military machine on the planet. Yet if you're in trouble, they'll come and bring relief. They'll be merciful. And that's why you and I should really react against those postmodernists in our age. Say, well, all people are the same. We're no better. Yes, in, in one sense, we're, not, we're still sinners, right? But there is a difference between the U.S. military and the Soviet Union's military. And my point is, is when you look at that idea of power and yet mercy, think of it expressed in Yahweh, the greatest warrior ever. He'll give mercy to those who cry out, who humble themselves. But yet he's a fearsome warrior to those who remain his enemies. And that's something that we have to glean from this. Now, notice it says that he's the Almighty. He's El Shaddai in Hebrew. That's what it would be. But he's also righteous and true. Now, what does righteousness have to do with? Well, righteousness is the ultimate standard of right and wrong, and there's no higher authority than God. Remember Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness is the foundation of his throne, isn't it? Right? It's the very foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O Lord. So there's no higher standard that you can go to. If you want to know what's right and wrong, there's no higher standard to go to than the Bible because it's God's word. That's what's frustrating, I think, for a lot of us now because you'll tell someone, well, that's wrong, and they'll say, well, who are you to tell me that that's wrong? Well, I'm telling you based on the righteous one, not because of me. So there's no higher righteous standard. But notice, it also says, true are your ways. Now, the ways here, the hodos, has to do with the ways of judgment. And the fact that he says righteous and true, there's no higher standard, there's no higher court that you could appeal to and say, hey, God, you're wrong. Your way of judgment it was an error. But notice, they're also true, his judgments. So no one can say, you know what, when I was judged by God, it was on trumped-up charges. No, his judgments are in fact right. And no one will be able to argue their case against him. Now, notice also that he's called king of the nations. And I want you to think about This is a political statement, isn't it? I'm not getting political. The Bible gets political. Here, Jesus is the king of the nations. And he's going to rule and reign. And I want you to think about how the kingdom comes and doesn't come. Oh, Beth has got something. Okay. You made the connection between um, Yahweh and, and Christ. And uh, what about the angel of the Lord? We've always yeah. thought of the angel of the Lord as being the pre-incarnate Christ. Is Yahweh then and the angel of the Lord the same even though they're named differently? Absolutely. I believe that the angel of Yahweh is often seen as the pre-incarnate form of Christ. And so, yeah. Um, he's the angel of Yahweh. 
um, why you, so you're saying why in the Old Testament isn't he just called Yahweh? Yeah. Right. Um, I don't know. <laughs> How was that? I don't know. You know, it's interesting. Um, he does things that only God can do. He has the same qualities that God has. He, in fact, leads the people through the wilderness. He intercedes where normally God would speak. The angel of Yahweh speaks, um, for instance, with Abraham, etc. So, yeah, it's... Um, that, that's very clear to me, but yeah. it isn't clear to me why, they, uh, why there are two different... Well, it seems like there are two different, that they aren't the same. What's that? The, the, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh and angel? And, well, and let's the remember, angel within the, the Trinity, you, well, let's just clarify. We have one God and three persons. Uh-huh. So let's say we designate the Son, the Son of God. We're not saying that there's multiple gods. We're saying that mm-hmm. he is, he's distinct from the Father, but yet he is of the same quality of the, as the Father, of the same essence. So here's the point. The angel of Yahweh would be, remember, messenger of Yahweh? Think about who is the, according to Hebrews, the apostle of our faith. The apostle is the sent one. Well, that's Jesus Christ, right? So in a sense, Jesus Christ is the sent one. He is the messenger par excellence. If you want the prophet of God, the one who speaks for God, it's the angel of Yahweh. It's the Messiah. He's the one who speaks uniquely for God. So he is the original sent one, the original apostle, the original the par excellence, the, uh, the prophet of God. Does that make sense? So that's why I think he's referred to as the angel of Yahweh. Okay, I guess the thing that I'll have, have to go back to is, is to see if it, if it does say the angel of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because I, I never... What's that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch the... Angel of, angel of the Lord. Does, oh, okay. Do you... Do you have it yeah. there? We, we do. There, okay. there are references, yeah. Huh? There are references where he, it is linked to Yahweh. I, I know that just from... All the, of the capitals. Yep. Cap, okay. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. I know that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, good question. I wish I could give you more. And, I, you know, if we did a whole study, I'm sure we could come up with a lot of good data on that. Yeah. Very good. So, yeah. Eric. I, yeah, I was just, I was thinking, I, the last couple times I read the Bible, I was actually focusing on, you know, angel of Yahweh, God, Holy Spirit, trying to understand. I know there's little differences in different, you know, who is God. I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, how much it matters. But what I saw in the Old Testament is uh, Yahweh, uh, messenger of Yahweh, sometimes, it, you know, the arm of the Lord, and uh, Holy Spirit. And I know he made a, a distinction between the three, and then he often broke it, just like the New Testament does. But I never saw, for instance, well, I'll, I'll skip that part, but anyways, I, to me, it's God's always been, you know, in, in a form of, here's three separate, this is God, this is God, this is God, and even when he, like to Moses, he'll start out, um, he saw the messenger of Yahweh in the burning bush, and now all of a sudden Yahweh is speaking to him. And the same uh, happens other places where you see, um, you know, either the messenger of Yahweh or normally it's the messenger of Yahweh. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, the messenger is not speaking, but God's speaking to him. Yahweh is speaking to him. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And then, um, you know, it's the same in the New Testament. It's like Jesus. You know, here's Jesus speaking, and then, you know, all of a sudden, I and the Father, you know, am one. And here's, to me, it's just one of those, you know, forms of God's way being above our way. It's 
to me, it's just he's Jesus, he's God. You know, he's man, he's God. I mean, you mean Jesus in the form of, you know, he's God, he's man. You know, it's, yeah, to me, well, it's just something beyond our... Yeah, Eric, let me try to bring some just clarity to what you're thinking here. Think about in John 1, in verse 1. In fact, everybody turn there. John 1, 1, we'll start there. And then I want to answer this just a little bit. We'll spend a little time here because it's important. What I want you to see in John 1, 1 is we see evidence that Jesus, the Word, is of the same quality of the Father. In other words, he's every bit as much God as the Father is, but he is a distinct person. So notice in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, this is the Messiah. This is the second person of the Trinity. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, notice where it says the Word was God. You know, if the Jehovah Witnesses show up at your doorstep, they're going to say the Word was a God. And the reason why is because there's no definite article. Well, the point is, is when you do the grammar, and I'll sometimes diagram this again. I've done it numerous times, and I think people get annoyed with it. But the reason I diagram it is I show that in this very succinct statement in John 1.1, what is being shown here by this what's called a pre-verbal predicate nominative is what we have is the word is qualitatively the same, but he is a different person than the Father. So the word is qualitatively the same as God the Father, but he is a different person than God the Father. So you have two different heresies that are refuted right in John 1.1. 1, 1. one is Arianism, which denies that Jesus is God. But there's another one called Sabellianism. Sometimes it's called modalistic monarchianism. That's easier, believe it or not, for me to remember because think about modalistic, mode, you change modes. Monarchianism is the king. Okay, so this is what modalistic monarchianism says. It says that sometimes there's only one God, and he expresses himself in three different ways. Sometimes he has the father's costume on, and sometimes he puts the son's costume on. Well, then sometimes he puts the Holy Spirit's costume on. Now, this would be the version that, like, the oneness Pentecostals hold to. Okay, but what this verse does is it shows us that, no, the word is separate than God the Father. They're qualitatively the same, but they're different persons. Okay, now let me show you another example because you mentioned the arm of Yahweh. Very interesting. This is in Isaiah. Everyone turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53. <laughs> you know, as you're turning there, I'm actually turning to Isaiah 59 because I want to make a connection. So bear with me. I want to see if... I'll find that later. Isaiah 53. Notice he says, Who has believed? This is Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now stop there. The arm of Yahweh is first introduced to us in Isaiah chapter 40. And so a lot of times when you read that, you just think, well, the arm of Yahweh is just as synonymous with the strength of Yahweh. It's by his mighty right hand he took the Israelites out of Egypt, Right? And that's absolutely true. The arm of Yahweh is the strength of Yahweh. But notice it's personified now. Verse 1, who has believed and who has heard from us? And, who to, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now notice verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. So notice all of a sudden the arm of Yahweh is no longer just this ethereal you know, pie in the sky, it's the strength of God. Now it's personified in a person, the suffering servant. 
So the suffering servant, the Messiah who comes to shed his blood for us, he is the arm of Yahweh. He is the strength of God's salvation. So here you see the indication that he grows up before Yahweh, but he is the very arm of Yahweh. So you see a distinction then between the father and the son. Yes, he grows up before Yahweh as a distinct person, but yet he's also the very arm of Yahweh. The same thing can be said of the angel of Yahweh. Yes, he's Yahweh. Yeah, Bob. I got the passage. Oh, you did? Good, good. At least one of them. Good, thank you. Okay, Exodus 3, verse 2. Exodus 3 and verse 2. Exodus 3, verse 2. I'll read it. Yeah, thank you. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Moses, in a flame of fire within a bush. And Moses looked, and he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. <coughs> Why is it the bush burning up? Then the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, and God called him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And so we see here the Lord, Yahweh, God probably. Yeah. Uh, Adonai, what is, which one is that? Yeah, um, I'm sorry, where was that one, Bob? Exodus 3, um, 2, so have, 3. That's, yeah, so that's Yahweh. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Excuse me. So we have Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, yes. God, I am that I am. Yeah. Amen. It's That's a great right connection, there. Bob. Thank you. So right there at the burning bush, you have the angel of Yahweh. Well, who is he? He's Yahweh himself. In fact, notice everyone in Exodus 3.14, when Moses says, who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? He says, tell them I am sent you. Now, where Yahweh's name comes from, more than likely, is what's called a yiktol verb in Hebrew. It just simply means, I will be who I will be. We simplify and just say, I am. So the great I am is here in the burning bush. All right? But notice he's also referred to as the angel of Yahweh. Let's make the connection. John eight fifty eight. before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is the same quality of the Father, but he is a distinct person. But if you've seen the Son... You've seen the Father. All right, so that way we can literally call Jesus Yahweh, knowing that he's still a distinct person from the Spirit and the Father. Does that, does that help, Eric? Okay, Luann, I'm sorry. I think another one that's helpful for Beth is um, Luke 1, um, let's see, verse 11. This is where the Zechariah is going to be told that they're going to have a son. Sure. And it says that um, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Zechariah, standing at the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah doesn't want to believe it. How can this be? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the angel of the Lord there, because that's not in all caps, gets kind of angry with him and says, I am Gabriel. I stand before. So if you move on, he yeah. says who he is. Right. Well said. Yeah, and, and, and let me make that point clear. Anytime you see an angel of the Lord, it's not necessarily an angel of Yahweh. It's not the pre I, I don't want to make that error. And you're exactly right. And there, you wouldn't see all caps anyway because now we're in the Greek. And the all caps in the Old Testament is for Yahweh's technical name. So, like, let's say you, say, you see Lord small caps in the Old Testament. That's normally Adonai, okay? But if you see Lord all caps in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh, okay? So the Lord there would probably be kurios in, in, in the Greek. I don't have the Greek text in front of me, but that's probably what it would be, 
Okay, but you're right. There's every time you see an angel of the Lord doesn't mean that that's a pre-incarnate form of Christ. It's just oftentimes when you see the angel of Yahweh, it oftentimes is. So yeah, thank you, Luann. Very good. So Eric, I hope that helps to see the distinction. One God, three persons. Um, back to my analogy, real quick, of a government. We have one government with three branches, and if I'm in trouble with the IRS. That's part of, what would that be, the executive branch, right? They can come after me. But if I'm held before Congress, that's part of the legislative branch. And if I fail to tell the truth under oath before them, I'm still in trouble with the, the government, okay? So someone couldn't say, well, you can disregard what the Congress says because that's not government. No, that's government. We have the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. One government in three branches. We have one God and three persons. Now, the way that analogy breaks down, of course, is that all three members of the Trinity are co-equal. They're co-eternal, co-essential. They have the same attributes of deity. Whereas you could say, well, one branch of government has more power than the other, etc. You can make that argument. But do you see what I'm getting at? One God, three persons. Just like one government with three branches. Okay. All right, so King of the Nations, dear ones, this is... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Barb. Uh, as long as we're just in Exodus 3 with, with the I am that I am, yeah. can you explain the difference between Yahweh and the name Jehovah? Is there a difference? What's the difference? What's preferable? Is that, does Jehovah have the connotation of Jehovah's Witnesses? Or is... Um, if you could maybe expound on that a little bit while yeah, we're there. Yeah, Je Jehovah is kind of the Latinized version. It, it's actually put into the English Bibles that way a lot of times. But they're, what they're trying to do is just simply spell it out because they're going from Hebrew and they're trying to put it into English. But Yahweh is the better pronunciation. What Yahweh's name comes from is, again, it's, it looks like a, it's a verb in, in Hebrew. It looks like a karate chop. It's hayah. Okay? And what that is simply, it's a yiktol verb means um, I will be. Yiktol is simply something that's going to happen, okay? So Yahweh is I will be who I will be or I am who I am. So Yahweh is the preferable rendering from the Hebrew. Jehovah would be um, more of an English, someone trying to write an English version for it. Does that make sense? So the Jehovah Witnesses, the issue isn't that they're using the term Jehovah. The issue is that they've poured false ideas into who he is, namely that there's one God, which is true, but that there's not three persons within the Trinity, and they deny the deity of Christ. So that's their problem. And because they deny the deity of Christ, what do they have? They have a different Christ. Just as Paul warned about in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I fear that you have a different Christ, a different spirit, and therefore a different gospel. So we can't just believe in any God, and we can't just believe in any Christ. We have to believe in the Christ that's revealed in Scripture in order to be saved, and that's why it's so important. Yeah, yeah Nancy. Well, and, and as we're talking about the Trinity, we have these movies like The Shack that, have, that has come out, and I've had numerous conversations with friend, Christian friends of mine, and it's really damaging because yeah. they see the Trinity depicted, but they can't decipher the error in which it's depicted. Right. Well said. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Um, I don't remember all the names. I read that book years ago to, to kind of re review it. I know the movie just came out, but... I remember the Holy Spirit in that book is really a reference to a Hindu river. And so this is what we see is we see the whole culture shifting to Eastern thought where God is no longer both transcendent and imminent, but he's only imminent. 
So transcendent means that he's above the creation and distinct from it. Well, they're placing God within the creation. It's panentheism or pantheism. And so now the Holy Spirit is just a Hindu river. Um, it's an attack on his name, is his character. It's, it's really vile, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, there was somebody else who had a question. You're, you're doing such a good job of really bravely trying to get through the material. And, and we, but this is, all, this is all very pertinent and good. Yeah. And, and so I don't want to extend the, the tangent so much, but what we really see when we study Revelation is comprehensive. You know, what we need to have as Christians is we need to be comprehensive in the way that we understand and look at the Bible because these are things people have wrestled with for centuries, thousands of years, Trinity and all of it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I read a, a commentary once that it's a real good way to study the Bible to just select a New Testament book and read it over and over again for a month. <laughs> and during that time, also be reading through the Old Testament because over the years, you get a comprehensive understanding. Yeah. And what we really need to do is realize this is God's Word. Now, God wants to reveal Himself to us, yeah. but we need to be patient as we, as we un- understand His Word. Well and, said. and when we talk to unbelievers, a lot of times a person with a rebellious heart doesn't want to try to understand God's word and God's Amen. truth. And we as believers, we want to understand that. And, and the church uh, writ large or the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, uh, us, we, <laughs> we and those others of our brothers and sisters who are all over, we need to just treat God's word with patience and, and love and, and, and pursue it. Amen. Like we're doing here. Because then that's how we can be salt and light to the world. Well said. You know, one thing that's always impressed me by studying the scriptures, you look at 66 books, you go from Genesis to Revelation, you never see contradiction in it. That's what's so amazing. So let's just take the idea of the New Testament. You do see progressive revelation. So from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see more and more being revealed to us. And for instance, let's take the idea of the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh is more opaque than the revelation of Christ in the New Testament. However, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's directly alluding to himself to that Exodus 3 passage in verse 14. Well, Bob just showed us that the angel of Yahweh is used there. Hence, what is Jesus? Well, he's the angel of Yahweh. Because if Jesus is linking himself to it, we have to say, you know what? There's no contradiction in Scripture. Jesus is linking himself to that. Jesus is the angel of Yahweh as the pre-incarnate Christ. So these are the connections that we have to make. And so this is the way we read. We read, first of all, to understand the, the author's intent. And we're in any given book. We want, For instance, if we're reading Romans, we want to understand what Paul said. Okay, now if I come across a term and I say, well, how does Paul use that elsewhere? That's my first step. How does Paul use it in the book of Romans? How does he use it in the wider corpus of his works in the New Testament? Now... I'm going to take that term and say, well, how is it used elsewhere in the New Testament? Now I'm going to say, well, how else is it used in the entire Bible, even in the Old Testament Septuagint? That's how we should think. So smart, start small when you're studying. Okay, if you're studying the book of John, how does John use that term? Look at the book of John, look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, look at Revelation. But then branch out. So I always start with the author and we branch out from there. Does that make sense? That'll help us to be better readers and interpreters of Scripture.
Yeah, well said. So, well, I'm sorry. Um, this was great discussion. Thank you for all the wonderful questions. And you know what? We got plenty of time. We, we're the people who have eternity, right? So whether we get through it here or, or later, we don't care. We'll get through this uh, next time. So God bless all of you. Thanks for coming. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can look here into the song of your redeemed and remember that you are the one who is deserving of all praise and glory and honor because you will bring your rule and your kingdom to earth and rule forever, subduing your enemies and bringing salvation for your people. We thank you for these things. We lift up our teacher, Bob. We pray for his stamina, and we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what he has to say to us through the scriptures and the sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.